Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds like we are being invited this morning to behold the life of someone who enjoys success upon success, someone whose life is to be celebrated and applauded. In a strange sort of way, we are going to hear about such a person this morning, but as we dig into these verses, we are going to be hearing a great deal about suffering, so much so that we may find it difficult at times to believe that what we are reading here is the portrait of someone who has done well. For you and me, it's almost a paradox to think of suffering and success as going hand in hand. But we're not talking about you and me. We are talking about the servant of God, the one that we will come to know as Jesus. And if ever there has been a person who was put on this planet whose vocation it was to suffer, it was Jesus. It is through his suffering that he accomplishes his mission. So what we are being invited to behold this morning is the most astonishing story of a servant who suffers and yet is exalted. And we read of that very astonishment here at the tail end of Isaiah 52. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. But did you notice that there are two ways here in which the servant is described as being astonishing? The first way is that raw and visceral kind of astonishment that we experience when we behold Christ in the moment of his execution. If you can, bring yourself in your mind's eye to the foot of the cross where you can look up and see the bloody and mangled wreck of Christ's body. An appearance described here as being so marred that it doesn't even look like a person anymore. Just imagine the degree of astonishment that you would feel in that presence. And now we have a foretaste of the degree of astonishment that is about to be laid out for us as we dig in to Isaiah 53. What we will discover is that there was a purpose 
for all of that suffering, namely the sprinkling of many nations. Because of the work of Christ, a way has been made for all the nations to be cleansed from their sin. And what we find is that just as we were astonished at the foot of his cross, so also are we astonished at the foot of his throne. Because we find in that exalted place the most unlikely of hero, a lamb. A lamb that has given itself over to be slaughtered. So as we embark on this astonishing journey through Isaiah 53, there are four milestones along the way. We're going to see a servant scorned and scoffed at, a servant substituted and sacrificed, a servant silent and submissive, and finally, a servant sovereign and satisfied. So the first thing we see is a servant scorned and scoffed at. Isaiah 53 begins with a question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The question is essentially this. Who in their right mind is going to listen to us as we share this ridiculous news about a lamb that saves the world by dying. I can't be the only one who sometimes wishes that the central figure of the gospel was something more like a bear or a lion, something that people would naturally marvel at and gravitate towards. It would make sharing the gospel so much easier, wouldn't it? But what we have instead is a lamb. And let's face it, nobody is looking to be rescued by a lamb. You needn't look beyond Christ's own disciples for the proof. Do you remember when Christ asked them, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who boldly confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces him blessed. He gives him a new name and he says that he will be the rock on which he will build his church. That must have been a proud moment for Peter. He certainly seemed to be at the top of the class. But it wouldn't be very long until Jesus starts to reveal to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. You see, this wasn't quite what Peter had in mind. In fact, he was so appalled by the idea of Jesus suffering that he actually has the gall to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, that these things should ever happen. So there, in Peter's disgusted reaction, we see in one man the natural human response to the concept of a suffering servant. Verse 
the passage goes on to elaborate. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. As I reflected on this metaphor, I couldn't stop thinking about a crop of carrots that my wife and I grew in our garden this year. It was a complete spur of the moment thing. We saw a pack of seeds in the supermarket, 50p. Let's just stick them in the flower bed and see what happens. Between you and me, I wasn't holding out much hope for these carrots. But to keep a long story short, along with a juicy, tender, slow-cooked gammon joint, these were the most delicious carrots we had ever had. Then a few weeks later, we had some friends round at our house, and we were telling them about these amazing carrots. We said to them, you must take some with you. So my wife went out into the garden. She pulled a few up, and she brought them in. But we were mortified when our generous gift was not met with the gratitude that it deserved, but with ridicule and mockery. You see, we had neglected to warn our friends that garden-grown carrots do not necessarily look like the ones that you get in supermarkets. These were Isaiah 53, 2 carrots. They had no form or majesty that we should look at them and no beauty that we should desire them. Isaiah paints a similar but much more extreme picture of the servant. He speaks of a tender shoot growing against all odds in a dry and arid climate, without moisture, without proper soil to protect it and nourish it. He speaks of a biological impossibility. And that's exactly what we see with the appearance of this servant. In the dry and arid soil of a Jewish culture that had fallen so deeply into decadence, so that their only thought for God was out of a legalistic obligation to his law. In that barren waste did God plant this tender shoot. But desert-dwelling folk are not used to seeing tender shoots. To them, Jesus was the ugly carrot. He was the thing that didn't belong, the thing that didn't fit in. And it's for this reason that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So not only was the environment inhospitable, to produce this tender shoot, but when it did appear, it was actively hostile towards him. He was rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
to the point of having murder plotted against him. He was rejected by the Romans as a political troublemaker. He was rejected by one of his close friends, Judas. He was rejected by the masses in their choice of the criminal Barabbas over him. It is no wonder that he is referred to as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All of his life practically spent as an alien and an outcast in his own creation, scorned and scoffed at. How do you react today when you hear people regarding our Savior with contempt? How do you feel when you hear his name reduced to a swear word? Does it make your soul sorrowful to see the Savior scorned and scoffed at? The next thing that we see is a servant substituted and sacrificed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now here we have the affirmation that what he endured was not his own punishment, it was our punishment. He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Yet the majority perception of Jesus when he was crucified was that he was a man under God's judgment. Can you believe that there were people who watched as he carried his cross through the streets and they shook their heads with derision saying, would you look at that sorry soul? And with a measure of self-righteousness, they would have asked, what must he have done for God to smite him so badly? And that's what people genuinely believed. They had become a nation of Job's comforters. Do you remember the story of Job when he was afflicted by God and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar come to comfort him. But in the end, they have a faulty theology of suffering because they conclude that God must be punishing Job because of some sin that he has neglected to repent of. Well, by that logic, if Job's punishment is because of his sin, then Jesus must be the chief of sinners for all that he suffered. And that's honestly what people thought of him. That's the level of shame that he unjustly subjected himself to. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But it's simply not true. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This wasn't a man who had run afoul of God because of how he had conducted himself. This wasn't a man whose every thought and deed was evil continually. This wasn't a man, this wasn't a false teacher 
who was receiving his rightful judgment from God. No, this was God's servant standing in our place, receiving our rightful judgment for our iniquity, all of the wicked thoughts and deeds that you and I have every day. He stood in our place as the substitute. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Who would ever imagine that such a life filled with suffering, coming to this agonizing crescendo of pain at the cross of Calvary, who would ever imagine that out of all that sorrow, we would find healing and peace? Who would ever imagine that we could stand to benefit so much from the sorrows of an innocent man? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I said this a few weeks ago at my son's dedication, and I'll say it again today. It's this turning to our own way that is the very essence of what it means to sin. To decide that we know the best way, that we can separate right from wrong, is to say that God is not God. It is to say, I am God. I will decide what's right and what's wrong. It's that arrogance, that refusal to be a creature that is so utterly offensive to God. It is that deep well of arrogance that exists in the soul of every man and woman that required of Christ the ultimate sacrifice. All of my iniquity is transferred to the back of the sinless Savior. He's the only vessel that could ever contain the sheer volume of my depravity so that he and not I could be the subject of God's undiluted wrath against sin. And that's only half the story because as much as my sin is transferred to Christ, so also is his righteousness transferred to me so that I am regarded by the Father now as one who possesses the very righteousness of Christ. And I am not worthy of it. But it is a gift, freely given, and I'd be mad to refuse it. This is the substituted and sacrificed servant, the one who stands in our place. Are you filled with gratitude this morning for what he has done? Or have you forgotten how deeply and desperately we needed a savior? We also see a servant silent and submissive. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I find that people are very quick to point out anything that they perceive to be an injustice against them. That's not fair, we cry out, probably more often than not out of a selfish sense of justice. But there was one moment in history when these words could have held more weight than at any other time, when these words would have been most apt, and that was if they had come from the lips of our Savior as the zero hour of his mission approached and his soul was racked with anxiety at the thought of what lay ahead. What if in the garden of Gethsemane he had said, wait, I am God. Why should I have to pay this price? Why should I bear the torment? Why should I do this for these people who do not even want to know me? Those could rightly have been his words in the garden. But they weren't. Because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto. So he chose to be silent, to take the punishment and to suffer the injustice like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see a silent and submissive servant, a servant whose submission to his master is absolute. Even when his master requires of him the ultimate sacrifice, he gracefully submits his life. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? For Jesus, obedience to the Father's will meant that he would never have a family. He would have no wife. He would have no children who would mourn and grieve at his passing. We will never speak of his generation. We will never trace a lineage back to him because at the Father's will, he gave up all of these things in order to secure for himself an eternal family. One filled with sons and daughters that are his by spiritual adoption. He preferred the eternal reality over the present reality. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. So long as we are clinging on to this present reality, clutching at the things that exist in the here and now, we will never truly be able to submit to the Father's will for our lives until we, like Jesus, learn to fix our hearts and minds on what is eternal.
How much of your life have you submitted to God? And how much are you still clinging on to this world? And the last thing we see is a servant satisfied and sovereign. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All of Christ's life had been about this mission to redeem humanity. But to engage in this mission required of him a humiliation that we cannot even begin to imagine. For the Son to leave the bliss of heaven and to sojourn here as the suffering servant is the greatest imaginable condescension of rank and title. And he bears the weight of that humiliation right up to and including his death. But then something changes. In the moment when Christ breathes his last breath and he utters those words, it is finished. We know he means that his mission is finished, but it does also mark the end of his humiliation. It is the beginning of his exaltation. What should have happened next, and what happened to all the other victims of crucifixion, is that his body should have been taken to a place called Gehenna, outside the city, where it would have been thrown on a pile and burnt like garbage. But that couldn't happen. That would have been a continuation of his humiliation, but the era of his humiliation is over. And what we see instead is the era of his exaltation ushered in by this most unlikely gesture wherein a Roman official permits a condemned criminal to be buried in a grave of honor. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And now we come to this tricky verse. What do we do with this verse that so candidly describes a father that willingly inflicts pain on his son. One translation even renders it as it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So what do we do with this verse? It's about perspective. In one dimension, the cross is the most gruesome and reprehensible event in all of human history. But from the perspective of redemption, it is the sweetest of all sights. 
And for God, his glory shines brightest out of the completed work of Christ. In Christ, we see God's answer to the problem of evil. His answer is not to sweep it under the rug and pretend that it doesn't exist. His answer is not just to destroy it, at least not yet anyway. No, his answer is the best of all possible answers because his answer is to redeem evil. It is to show that even it can be given a purpose and be made to reflect the glory of God. And that is the sense in which Christ's bruises are a profoundly pleasant sight to the Father. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And now we have the moment where the servant sees the fruit of his labor, and he knows that it has not been in vain. Like the woman who screams through the agony of childbirth, but then moments later is a fountain of joy when she holds in her arms the reason and the justification for her pain. She looks into those tiny little eyes and she knows that she would go through it all again if she had to. And when Jesus holds the church in his arms, the gift which the Father has given him. So also will he regard her and deem that the deep, incomparable anguish of his soul had been worthwhile. The servant will be satisfied with the fruit of his labor. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so we understand at last that this is the reason why Jesus is exalted by the Father. This is the reason why it is not the metaphor of a lion or a bear that we look upward and marvel at. Because those animals do not bear iniquity and make many righteous, but slaughtered lambs do. The paradox of the suffering servant is resolved. And all that is left now for us to do is to let the tide of his majesty and splendor roll in and lift us up on waves of rejoicing and praise. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous vision of your servant. We thank you 
that it is your ways and not ours by which we are saved. For who except you would have the wisdom to send into this world your son to make an atonement for sin. May we carry with us this vision of the exalted lamb. May it be for us an anchor for our souls. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website, 